Well, ladies and gentlemen, I got to tell you, once again, it's time for the Inside EMS podcast. I am excited to be here with you today. You know, and I say that at a time when it's really kind of stressful out. I am excited to be here to talk to you. And one of the things that I am most excited about is the career field and the work that they are doing within this pandemic. I got to tell you, I am constantly inspired every day by my peers, uh, by some agencies and the things that we're doing within this pandemic. And uh, I'm excited to bring you today's show because we really wanted to try to find some guests who are really working within this pandemic, who could really kind of give you some of that inspiration. I mean, everybody, you know, we've all been through this, right? We've all felt the stress and we've all felt, you know, the the exhaustion and we've all wondered when is this going to end and how are we going to and where do we get done? But one of the things that I want us to really look at is how this is going to affect EMS today, but how it's going to affect us tomorrow. And I want to talk specifically about how this pandemic is going to aid in the in the you know rebirth let's say of community paramedicine we've done a good job over the past you know decade and some odd years of really bringing community paramedicine to the forefront but more and more we're hearing about these agencies that are using community paramedics in such unique ways and when we start to think about the the eyes of the healthcare system the eyes of the world that are on EMS right now this is going to be our finest hour in our exhaustion in our frustration you know, we are going to be seen as a great career field who's now coming to the aid of the healthcare community. We are doing things in our field right now that we were meant to do. We know the value of EMS. We know the job that we can do in EMS. And what we're doing now is we're showing the healthcare community, we're showing the world what we're going to be able to do. I mean, do I sound a little fired up? Do I sound a little excited? I got to tell you, in this pandemic where we are are losing some of our peers, where we are losing friends, this is something that I think has a very, very good lasting effect in EMS. I send prayers out. I send strength out to all the people who are out there who are doing the job that are on the front line and who are really trying to make a difference. You know, my heart goes out to the folks in New York. You know, the EMS agency is uh, under siege right now. You know, the folks down in Louisiana and New Orleans, you know, tip of the hat to you for the work you guys are doing. Certainly out in California where they're having a challenge, the EMS system is being pushed to its max. And, uh, you know, for everybody else there across the United States, our time is coming and we've got to be able to be prepared for it. Okay, with that said, Kelly Grayson is uh, not joining today. He is working on the truck and, of course, delivering the highest quality of patient care that he does you know, I send my uh, tip of the hat to my partner. He is going to join us when he can, but over the next couple of weeks, over the next month or so, he may be in and out very sporadically, and of course we want to understand that. I will do my best to continue to pick up the gauntlet and bring you the best information that I can, hopefully be a little entertaining along the way, but keep everybody abreast of what's going on. All right, so let's transition now into the show. So, you know, I've been talking to a lot of peers across the United States, and I've been reading a lot of articles, and I've been doing, like all the other leaders in EMS, we've been doing tons and tons of research about what this pandemic means, and how we can assess this pandemic, and how we can do the very best. And i got to tell you, you know, across the United States, there are some great people who have some great information and some great knowledge. 
and I've talked to these folks. I've been inspired by these folks. I've been motivated by these folks. And I, I really was interested in the public health response to this epidemic. And I have a great peer and kind of recently attached uh, and connected. And she is Maggie Allard. She is a doctor. She's board certified in internal medicine. And she has a fellowship in training and research and clinical effectiveness and public health training in health policy and management. And I got to tell you, she has worked in this area for 25 years in her medical director roles. She was in public health for 13 town region in southern New Hampshire. We've taken that trip up there to the northeast. I just love it. And I got to tell you, Maggie's passion for public health is really giving me inspiration about what we need to do when it comes to uh, community paramedicine and how we need to handle this pandemic. Maggie, I want to welcome you to the Inside EMS podcast. Thank you so much, Chris. It's great to be here. And uh, I got to tell you, I'm very excited for you to be here. We've talked a lot about public health and this response. And I really just want to kind of share, you should share, what is public health response during this epidemic? Yeah, so let me take you back a little bit. Uh, we are just two weeks into this pandemic. On March 11th, COVID-19 was declared pandemic by the World Health Organization. That signified that there was rapid spread and high morbidity and mortality in over 110 countries at that time. It was epidemic in many countries and thus declared a pandemic. Then on March 13th, President Trump declared COVID-19 a national emergency, which under both the Stafford Act and the National Emergencies Act allowed states across the country to access federal relief funds and work jointly with HHS, FEMA and others to launch statewide efforts. Now, very important under um, this national uh, emergency that President Trump declared is that HHS was able to waive certain regulations. For example, doctors can now work in states outside of where they are licensed. As well, states are allowed to expand their telemedicine reach, especially into rural communities. Both of these exceptions, as we will discuss further in this podcast, can be critical to community paramedicine practice. Now, within states, governors, state HHS, and state hospital organizations are setting up widespread public health response through points of dispensing, or pods. Now, these are used to treat, vaccinate, or in this case, to test large numbers of people in very short periods of time. These are high-throughput facilities. State HHS is also working with various governmental agencies, the National Guard, Incident Command at hospitals, and local and county police, fire, and EMS to develop surge facilities. Now, surge facilities vary from massive medical tents outside um, in parking lots to high schools, hospitals, and other buildings, which will be repurposed Unfortunately, as large COVID wards for patients in various levels of primarily respiratory failure. And this is where community paramedicine can respond. Yesterday's Boston Globe article on a comprehensive care response to coronavirus in Massachusetts speaks very nicely to this. In a nutshell, we need to be able to safely triage and support COVID-19 patients in their homes. This will effectively bring urgent care and hospital care into the home, which will increase beds, help with distancing, and help with the PPE shortage. I believe, and I know many of us on the call do, that with proper guidance, community paramedicine is poised at this time to respond to COVID-19 at home and in the community. 
you know, Maggie, I think that, you know, that really kind of says exactly what we needed to know from a, from a, you know, public health response. One of the things that EMS doesn't do well enough is interact with public health. How do we now take this from the side of the mission that we have to do and reach out to public health to say, what can we do for you? Or what can you do for us? Or how do we collaborate? Or, or, you know, what's the best way that we attack this together? Something that we should always be doing, but something I think we forget to do. Understood. Yeah. So in every state, the state HHS is working with the state hospital organization and with public health. Um, and public health and the state HHS organizations are reaching out to their county and local hospitals and public health organizations. So if you're in a county or in a local area, I would reach out to the hospital that you're, uh, that you work under or to the public health department that you work under. Um, fire and police and even EMS are already involved, um, in a lot of these activities. Where I live in New Hampshire, I know that um, our uh, we have uh, fire um, and police and EMS working throughout the state. We're going to be setting up about eight surge facilities right now. Um, so these these processes are ongoing right now. Very good. And I think that that's a great start for us to look at. So as we transition, as we kind of talk about this, and what is the true role, or what could the role of CPMIH be in this COVID response? And I want to bring in two physicians here that's going to help me with this particular segment. Mike Wilcox, he's a board-certified family medicine doctor, and he's practiced in rural Minnesota for about 38 years, which is pretty awesome because he only looks 25 years old. Dr. Wilcox is the medical director for Rural EMS Services, as well as the medical director at the Community Paramedic Program at Hennepin Technical College. And we get some great stuff out of Hennepin County up there in Minnesota. And also John Locknane, he is board certified in family medicine and palliative care. And he's got a really good take on palliative care and community paramedicine and also hospice medicine. He's, his clinical expertise includes rural family practice, hospitalist medicine, and palliative care. And he also served as the Senior Vice President of Acute Care and Innovation in the Commonwealth Care Alliance in Massachusetts. Mike, John, I want to thank you for joining us on the Inside EMS podcast. Well, thank you, Chris. It's certainly a pleasure for me to be a part of this podcast. Uh, And as has been uh, mentioned right up to this point, extremely important for all of us in the healthcare setting facing this pandemic to come together as partners in handling the needs that are presented to us as we face this uh, significant healthcare problem. And John, I want to thank you for joining us on the Inside EMS podcast. Uh, I want to thank uh, you for the opportunity to be here. As, as you stated earlier, I do think this is a crucial time to define the potential of community paramedics and, and set this for the future. Um, you know, my hope is this is the last time for a while we'll have to deal with the pandemic. But again, I think community paramedicine is well positioned to handle what we're facing now and to be even more prepared the next time there's a, a similar challenge to the uh, healthcare system both in the United States and around the world. I agree with you 100%, but it seems like every election year we're dealing with a pandemic, so we might have to see this in a couple of years. But, you know, Dr. Wilcox, let me ask you a question first. How can sure. community paramedicine play a role in this COVID-19 epidemic? We are seeing such incredible innovation around our career field right now, and I'm interested to get your perspective on this. 
I tell you what, uh, you know, I've been involved in the community paramedicine uh, initiative here in Minnesota for well over 10 years, been heavily involved in training and educating our uh, well-seasoned paramedics to step up to achieve certification in this area. And, you know, what we have found to be very essential as we develop their training program was the fact that as they went through the process, they went to the community where they were going to do their work, and they developed what we call a gap analysis to determine how they could uh, uh, add uh, uh, some, um, some uh, substance to providing health care within their communities. Now, at this point, as we face this epidemic, as we face this pandemic, that gap analysis will continue to be important in each of the communities where we have community paramedicine in place. What I have found to be essential as a part of this is to have perhaps some medical director oversight that may be involved in both the EMS arena and the public health arena. And I found it useful if you have medical direction that has a focus on both of these areas it allows us to uh, interact well with each other to provide resources in community paramedicine well within the public health sector and vice versa. It's worked well for us here in our state, and I believe this will work beautifully as we face this significant problem, the COVID-19 pandemic. Yeah, I think that's very interesting and does give us a lot to think about. And Dr. Lockdam, I, I want to kind of give you that same question. How could CP play a role in this COVID-19 epidemic? But then, you know, I, I also want you to kind of, you know, spin off in a little bit of your expertise here because we had a discussion that talked about palliative care and end-of-life care during this as well. So after you give us kind of a little bit of your thought about the role of uh, community paramedics during this epidemic, uh, I'd like you to kind of discuss, you know, that palliative care, end-of-life care as well thought. Uh, thank you. So I, I think there's no more uh, flexible provider than a community paramedic. Uh, I think the skill set that they have been trained to perform out in the field in stressful situations is second to none. And given where we are, the flexibility that is needed to care for both the pandemic and for complex and other populations, I've always felt and in the program that I developed with Matt, who will join us later, um, in Massachusetts is one of the pilot programs through East Camp Commonwealth Care Alliance, treated very complex dual-eligible patients. And it was really centered on this unique skill set that paramedics have about arriving in people's homes, de-escalating situations, having manual skills such as starting IVs, and also having excellent communications to uh, communicate difficult clinical scenarios to medical control to make uh, good decisions to keep patients in their home both safe and to actually avoid hospitalizations or ED visits, which at times can be uh, detrimental to patients. So this flexibility is exciting. And as I think about a lot of what my role has been in terms of clinical um, both product uh, uh, program development and also clinical delivery, uh, palliative and end-of-life is an area where there are constant work shortages. There's not enough hospice RNs to move around and see patients in a timely fashion. Also, at, at, at different areas, there's little or no end-of-life resources. But even in the most rural communities, there are paramedics and EMTs who can see people at home and actually provide a level of clinical um, intervention that is both uh, humanly comforting and also medically appropriate. So uh, one of the, the, the facets I've always 
really been excited about wherever I practiced in rural Montana, rural uh, Vermont, urban uh, Boston, has been that the paramedics are always available. They go out and they have skill sets that are unique, and at the same time, they're excellent in, tr in terms of understanding how to communicate and be part of an interdisciplinary team. Yeah, and I think that, again, you know, there's going to be so many opportunities for the community paramedics to, uh, you know, do different things. And this is one of those things. We've, we've done some work with hospice care and community paramedicine for a, a long time now. This is something that we're going to talk about that we're going to need, uh, especially during this pandemic. Now, you know, both you guys and, and Mike, maybe I'll ask you this question. Both you guys have done a lot of work at the state levels. And a lot of, you know, we think about Minnesota, Minnesota kind of led the way in, uh, you know, state regulation, state certification for community paramedic with the great work that our friend Gary Wingrove is doing up there. And but when we think about statutory requirements that are in place within the states right now, you know, they're going to, they really kind of set the practice of community paramedicine. Uh, they kind of set the practice for community paramedics. And, you know, in Massachusetts, there's even discussion about talk about community ENTs and the work that they're doing. So, Mike, if I ask you first, how do we now, you know, get with the states to kind of expand the role or to kind of, you know, lack some of those things that were written into, uh, you know, in, into statute? Because we're really in a different uh, environment right now that uh, we can't be hampered by, uh, you know, what a scope of practice looks like. You know, I agree with that, Chris. I think we have to be flexible in how we utilize our resources in the area of community paramedicine, community EMT work. Uh, in our state, uh, we do have statutory opportunity uh, through medical direction to really expand the role of a uh, paramedic, a community paramedic, and a community EMT. They can expand the role that they provide within the community under the medical director's license. So by our statute then, our EMS regulatory board, once our uh, paramedics and EMTs are certified through the board, through their training, they can work under my license to expand their role in community health in whatever capacity I feel is reasonable to uh, let them to do. So it gives me flexibility as a community paramedic if I have folks in the field keeping people at home in their own environment, the safest place for them, allow them to do the work under my license that provides best care for these patients within their communities. By statute, our state recognizes this. They have also statutory language in place to reimburse our CPs and our community EMTs to be paid for some of this work. And I believe with the new uh, federal uh, financing coming our way now with this uh, package that's now been uh, finally passed by our uh, national uh, legislators, there will be opportunities to use some of that money also in expanding the work of our community paramedics and community EMTs within our state. Yeah, I think that's going to be really important. John, you, you had a really great take on this when we were chatting the other day. And, and I really want you to kind of, you know, get your thought on this, you know, the statutory requirements. But you kind of, you know, kind of threw into the mix this uh, community EMT. And I had a nurse come up to me yesterday and she said, Chris, how long will it take me to become a paramedic? And I said, well, what, what are you interested in becoming a paramedic for? I mean, she, she's she been a nurse for a lot of years in the ER. She goes, well, in this community paramedic, she works with me in my, in my company. And in this community paramedicine, I want to be able to help out. 
And I think we forget that when we talk about mobile integrated healthcare and community paramedicine, that's just one of the rungs of the umbrella. Uh, and you bring up that, uh, you know, that community EMT. So I don't want to be taking up all your time on babbling, but uh, interested in your thoughts. Yeah, no, I, I, you know, I consider myself a clinical realist. And my first introduction to the power of EMTs was in 1972 when my father was the first EMT class in the Boston Fire Department. And I listened to his stories and his experience as a, as a fire truck lieutenant who would be first in the scene and all of the things he could do. And I actually saw growth in, in how he uh, approached his job as I became a physician and, and had lots of other both uh, friends and family became EMTs and then paramedics, uh, I became absolutely uh, convinced again as a realist that there are many more EMTs than there are paramedics. And those EMTs respond to perhaps the vast majority of, of what is acute uh, response in the United States. And I was, again, impressed and saw how those skill sets they're built, not only through education, but all of the runs that they do can be leveraged and leveraged quickly in a standardized fashion so that they that you, you could utilize different levels. We all know if in a community paramedics and home visit, there may be some aspects where an EMT is perfectly aligned with what needs to be done. There are times when EMT with some extra skill set may be the right provider, and there are clearly times where you need someone with a community paramedic level. So again, this is a workforce issue where I see skills that are already available, experience that has been gained, and how do you make that into a clinical reality to deliver care? To answer two other questions, I think that at the state and legislative uh, component of this, I think there's uh, two things I'd like to see. One is you know, a form and, and, and way for the providers, ambulance companies, fire departments and such to have uh, a, clear, a clear pathway in to say here's how we need to do things. Um, I think the people doing the jobs on the, the, the front lines have so much to add to this. You can add the EDs and other aspects to think about how do you all contribute to this, but I think that kind of forum where there's constant um, – Engagement and you use the you know the Plan Do See Act kind of evaluation to make sure that we're doing best practices uh, highly important and then secondarily to move towards the idea of um, a, a, a comprehensive payment structure you know the ET3 initiative I think was a great step forward I think now that we're in this pandemic there's even more uh, opportunity and 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 some some uh, stress to make this uh, much more comprehensive. But I think it's understanding for if you're a provider going out and developing either EMTs or community paramedics, how, how do you capitalize the program so you can get up and running, and then how are you paid to make it a consistent product that you can uh, you can actually offer and have uh, alignment with what needs to happen with patients, payers, and providers. Could I dovetail on that just a, just a bit? Uh, you know, our, our state, Minnesota, is primarily a rural area, and we have uh, certainly now in place uh, the opportunity for EMTs to certify to that level, community EMT. There's a training program that they go through that achieves this. There is a reimbursement for them that is legislatively and statute in place, and we're going to be expanding the use of community EMTs in the future because most often they're in the rural areas. Paramedics tend to be focused in more metro. And our feeling is here, as John has brought up, that in the rural areas, the EMTs, seasoned, well-trained, can uh, do much more in the area of community health than they ever have done before. 
And, and I want to dovetail to say I think that's absolutely the right model. We know there are health discrepancies between urban, suburban, and rural areas. And in some ways, if what's happening in Minnesota and other states could become nationally recognized and accepted guidelines, I think this would move uh, EMTs and paramedicine in a, in a much faster track to being a true consistent clinical intervention across the United States. I agree. You know, one of the things I want to do is I want to kind of take a look right now at, at medical control, you know, medical command and public health. And, you know, John, maybe I ask you this question. When we talk about the training for medical control, we talk about maybe how best we could use telemedicine. Um, so just your thoughts about that. So, you know, this, this is really a unique time. And, you know, you know, EMS providers aren't the only ones that are going to be taxed, aren't the only ones that are going to have challenges, but we've got to think about our own medical control as well, or people who want to be able to help in EMS to say, how do I, how do I learn what I need to do to, to help these folks that are out there? So I, I'm interested in your thoughts. Yeah, no, I, I think that uh, medical control is an interesting uh, process for physicians or NPs or PAs, I think it's really the right person. But it is slightly different than being on call in a system where you don't have a delivery component after hours. So traditionally, if a, a physician or a nurse practitioner or PA is called, you have two options. One is to send to the ED or say wait till the next day. So understanding uh, exactly what you can do at home for someone, uh, having the experience to have some of the nuances of what's occurring to, to figure out whether they need to go to the ED or not is, is crucial. Uh, so I do think that it's not something you can just flip a switch in uh, and make sure that people can do this well. So I think there has to be some baseline training. And I think there's a now enough of a cadre of individuals who have done medical control that some shadowing and real-life experience would be, again, helpful. Uh, with the medical licenses now going across states, I see this as a wonderful opportunity as community paramedics and EMTs need medical control that perhaps there is a group of individuals who can be a shadow on the phone, share some of the experiences, as well as providing some didactic education. Um, we know from um, our past experiences and, and the programs we've, we've been involved in that that medical control improves over time. The number of runs people do, the understanding they have, uh, really makes a difference. And there's right now, it's, I think there's no structured program where that's mentored. And I, I, would, I would love to get Mike's opinion on that. Yeah, John, I certainly agree with that. What we found to be useful uh, within the work of our state is to have uh, someone at that medical control area that has a background to some degree in primary care. Uh, I think it's useful uh, if you've got that background, if you have interest in both EMS and primary care, that is the type of individual that has really proven, I believe, to uh, provide the best uh, oversight in handling uh, the community paramedicine and community EMT initiatives that we are that we're talking about, and very uh, nicely you brought up uh, the telecommunication piece. Uh, that really is an area that's going to expand dramatically in the future. I think this uh, pandemic is going to really open the door on that. You'd mentioned that some physicians who have an interest in this uh, are uh, licensed in different states. Uh, I personally am one of those docs, and uh, indeed, uh, it gives us opportunities across state lines to provide this medical oversight through a regional approach to patient care with our CPs and CEMTs. The other thing I'd like to add, too, is especially now, um, going and having, having patients go to emergency rooms is often not a benign act. 
It often is what we do by default. But given where we are with the pandemic and for complex and other patients, an ED visit, which then may be an admission to an inpatient status, exposes the patient to a lot of different um, nosocomial infections, it can expose them to the misadventures of the healthcare system. So, in essence, in a lot of ways, I think providers in their minds think it's e- it's safer to go to the ED. And I think one of the real powers of community power medicine is that, in fact, you can bring the ED to them, which may prove to be more effective in caring for them and actually uh, keeping them from some of the challenges that EDs and hospitals have. Yeah, very interesting stuff. I want to switch gears here, and I want to get to a little bit about training. So when we think about this from a uh, pandemic standpoint, you know, community paramedics, EMS providers, they're very well trained. I mean, uh, somebody mentioned the other day, you know, is this going to be just a uh, overexposed training exercise, or are we really going to move into a lot of the work that we have to do? I think we're going to move into a lot of the work, but we are getting ready now, uh, you know, to start to think about this. And, you know, the from a community paramedicine standpoint, some states have specific educational backgrounds that they need to be able to complete uh, to be considered community paramedics or uh, even to be uh, community EMTs. So I'd be interested, Mike, from your standpoint, as you've got experience here, when we talk about the baseline education for community paramedics, are we now, you know, you talked about the scope of practice and being able to work under your license. Can we tap anybody to do this work, or do we have to give them some additional training to kind of assist in this pandemic? I tell you, I really do believe that if we as medical directors extend and open up our licenses to uh, patient care by a CP or community EMT, it's important to know that they've gone through a training program that is acceptable for me uh, as a medical director. Saying that, uh, within our Minsku system here at uh, Hennepin Tech, we have uh, a 310-hour curriculum that our CPs have to complete 144 hours of this is didactic, 196 is uh, clinical. And they need to go through this, they need to pass appropriate testing, and then they achieve certification through our regulatory board to be described as community paramedics. Community EMTs, we also now have a training program through Minsku. It's 20 hours on the web, 28 hours clinical. They go through the same training program. The testing uh, is completed. They achieve certification through our regulatory board as a community EMT. And when I know that certification is completed as a medical director, I know that I can rely on them then to go into the communities, take patient care right into the homes of our needy, and they can do this under my license, and I'm comfortable with that. Now, the beauty of this training program is it's a modular program. So if indeed I have uh, some of my providers that need some beefing up, for example, on uh, infectious disease management, we have a module in place for that. If they have a need to beef up their educational process in mental health issues, and of course we're seeing a lot of that now with the stresses we're dealing with uh, uh, through all of our population base, uh, we have a module to deal with that. So we can take pieces of this curriculum and we can then put it into a modular form. Much of it is on the web, and individuals can then pick up on that as needed to beef up, perhaps, some of their uh, needs in in the educational process. 
and, and I wanted to add to my, I agree with all of that. I also think that there's, again, a role for this experience with different populations. So a rural population may look somewhat different than an urban population. A population that uh, is being served that has severe physical disability looks different than a population that may be uh, 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 over 65. Um, there may be behavioral health, uh, severe persistent mental illness that the paramedics serve. So I think having a baseline ability to get didactic and other experiences, and then adding on, again, perhaps with mentoring relationships. So when they start seeing populations in certain areas, that the experience they have with one patient, there's immediate feedback about what went well, maybe what could be improved, and what the next visit would look like. So I think matching those two together and also understanding the knee and all healthcare is local, and the populations you serve all have slightly different um, perspectives about healthcare and also experiences are, are crucial. The um, last thing I wanted to add is I think that, you know, and especially at this time, but in, for most of us who have done a lot of work with patients in underserved or dual eligible plants, you know, there's so much uh, uh, traumatic experience in their lives. And I think that any paramedic or EMT program, uh, learning uh, trauma-focused care de-escalation is a key, key component. Um, you know, again, the times I've gone out with paramedics and, and, and during other times, you know, they're moving into really difficult situations with people absolutely under stress. And a key component of that is how well that is recognized and how much a trauma-informed kind of uh, clinical engagement can really drive success or, or, or not having a successful visit with the patient and family. We've kind of been looking at this at kind of a, a higher level, kind of a 50,000-foot view. Uh, but I want to kind of bring this down now to the grassroots and kind of talk about this from the, um, you know, the provider level. And we've got two guests that are going to join us as well. And we've just stacked this podcast with guests. And you may be looking at the time saying, you know, Chris, you're, you're, you're being long-winded today. You know, this is a special edition of Inside EMS, and it's the extended version as we try to get all this stuff out. Uh, but joining us now is uh, Dennis Russell. Dennis received his paramedic certification in 2014. He completed the Hennepin Technical College Community Paramedic Program, a certificate program. He's got a master's degree in education as well. And uh, presently, he's the dean for United's accredited education department and community paramedicine program manager for United Ambulance Services in Maine. He also works for Cataldo Ambulance Service in Massachusetts. Matt Goodrow. He's the Director of Implementation for Boston-based healthcare collaboration software. He held the National Registry Paramedic Certification for almost 30 years, and he has decades of experience in the medical field in a variety of clinical roles, um, including the role of clinical director in multiple large organizations, and a lot of experience in the mobile integrated healthcare paramedicine space as well. Matt and Dennis, I want to thank you for joining us. And Dennis, let me kind of ask you first, when we think about COVID-19 and we think about the training that's available or the training that paramedics need to go through, you know, what, what does that look like and, and what's the best way to get that uh, completed as, as these guys are scrambling around and kind of figure out what do we do and how do we do it? Well, Chris, thank you very much for having me. I'm pretty excited to be here. Uh, the best part of this whole thing, uh, in my opinion, is that with COVID-19, is a lot of the training has been in place. We have community paramedics who are trained to do um, various swabs, trained to do various techniques, and that a lot of that training is in place. We also have paramedics who don and doff on a regular basis, as well as community paramedics when they go into a home when it's infested with 
um, bed bugs and different things like that. So we already have paramedics who currently go into various situations who have to don, doff, and, and have to do various procedures. So a lot of the training is more specific training to the current test that they have to do. So they have a lot of that in place. And I think that's where we're looking at in our system to really utilize our community paramedics. They're a single-person team, and having them go out and do that versus uh, some other systems are looking at having uh, EMS providers, regardless of their licensure level, go out and be able to do the testing. So we're looking at that. Um, the other piece that we're seeing, too, is an uptick not only on that, but for calls for services. We have various home health agencies and various uh, nurse practitioners and different things that now aren't going into the home and patients who still need to have that care. And, again, we already have folks who have been doing this working on not overlapping other services, but now we're finding that other services are pulling out because they don't have the PPE, because they don't have the ability to don and doff for these patients who have chronic diseases. And we're working on how do we best service our community, looking at our community gap analysis. Matt, I want to kind of ask you the same question now. I mean, when we think about this from, from the training standpoint, um, you know, you've certainly, uh, you know, you're recognized in the mobile integrated healthcare space. You know, you're, you're an author, you're a speaker. I mean, so now if you're going to kind of give your opinion of, of how do these community paramedic programs prepare their, their providers uh, for this pandemic, where do you bring them? Yeah, I think this is a really great question and really important one to answer. And one of the components that comes to play for me is really uh, listening to the, the, the paramedics and, and feeling out where they're at. You know, we have two excellent programs here in Massachusetts, one of which I started, one of which Dennis works for. And I will tell you that, you know, I've talked to a lot of the community paramedics and they're, they're afraid uh, of being forced into a situation where they're going to be um, the front line for this. But the reality is that the fear is just caused by anxiety and just re just reminding them the level of training that they have received and going over the, the components that they already know to reassure them in a way that keeps them um, not, you know, to just eliminate some of that anxiety. I think that's a critical component to this. You know, at the end of the day, keeping people in the home is is what we're hearing out of Italy and other other spaces is being a top priority and you know, keep them in the home, keep them out of the healthcare facilities. And these individuals are, are uniquely placed to do that work. They have received the training. You know, each program, when we started our program, I worked with John Lockman here in Mass. We started our program. Uh, there wasn't a standardized uh, education platform out there that we now see through Hand and Pin, which is great. And so we built our own. And it was, it was really interesting to kind of compare and contrast the two programs. And they're very, very similar. So, we, you know, though we came at it from different uh, places, we ended up at the same place. And the upside to that is that you really do come to an understanding of, of the level of knowledge base that you, we're giving to these providers that go into the home. Refreshing it is critically important. Um, they, are, they will be at increased risk, and even these individual uh, EMS systems that are sending paramedics in the home to do a, the nasal swab for this, that's, that's a new skill set, but it brings with it an increased risk. And so making sure that we just touch the point with the paramedics and remind them that of their, what their skill sets are, I think is a critical component to that. And in addition to that, uh, taking what we've learned from community paramedicine and taking that level of education and offering it up to the, the street paramedics that are going out there, I think is something that we can do for our community that would, that will really greatly benefit kind of relieving some of that stress that we're hearing from those. And I think that really brings us to our next question. And Dennis, maybe I'll, I'll get your opinion on this. How can CPs best respond 
during this COVID-19 crisis. I mean, when we think about this, and really not just CPs, but I think our, our EMS providers as well. I mean, how do we now take what we've learned or how do we now expand the scope or how do we now, you know, do our daily business? Uh, because we may be going to the, the knee pain call, come to find out the whole house is affected with, uh, with COVID-19. Well, uh, here, here in Maine, we are uh, determining the response code and we have a lot of services for the street side going out and sending in one provider, doing an assessment, seeing what's going on, especially if there's if it allows to do that. Uh, with our community paramedics, they're still going out and doing visits, and we are screening each call. If there's a case where they are positive for possibility of having uh, COVID or some other issue with respiratory, then they don and off appropriately as well. So. We are screening before we go out to the homes or screening as we get there if there's any issues or problems. So one of the responses that we're doing is we're actually looking at, you know, before we get to the home, we have a chance to talk to the patient, see what's going on, see if they've been exposed. So we do screen all of our patients as we go, and then we don and off appropriately. I think building on that, too, one of the one of the great components of community paramedicine is that we spent a lot of time teaching paramedics the concept of social determinants of health, which is something that is not well represented in standard paramedic education, but a lot of the programs that have been designed are really addressing, helping to address those those needs. And I think we've never seen a, a timeline where social determinants are going to become more um, reflective of what happens with an individual's care. People that go into this situation of self-isolating, for example, because they have an exposure risk or a positive test, they still need to make sure that they we still need to make sure that they have the food in their home, that they have access to the secondary healthcare facilities, including maybe telemedicine as opposed to going into a doctor's visit. Um, these type of of screenings, as far as doing social determinants uh, evaluations and filling those gaps, is really critically important when we look at keeping these people in the home. And you know, community paramedics have been trained well on that in most instances. I think that that is an area that we should. Uh, reiterate with the community paramedics in real time, as well as paramedics in general, that it's not just about treating the health care of, of this particular person, but looking at those secondary needs and making sure they're getting addressed so we can help this person be successful in staying in the home. You know, I got to think that, uh, you know, there's a lot of things that we don't know we don't know yet kind of thing, and we've got to be able to use this as an opportunity to make the determination of, of how we're going to move forward. And for the sake of time, as we start to tick up there in minutes, uh, there's a couple more questions I really want to kind of put my hands on. And maybe Mike and John, I bring you back in here for this question. And John, if I ask you first, we start to think about this as, you know, Dennis and as, um, as Dennis and Matt were talking, it kind of gave me the thought of where does primary care fit into this? So I'm hearing a lot of people who are saying, I can't go to my doctor anymore. I can't go to my specialist anymore. You know, I'm stuck in the house and, you know, I, I don't know what I'm going to do for my routine care. I mean, how does this fit in with the community paramedicine world when it comes to primary care during this pandemic? Yeah, no, I, I think in some ways um, this is the key opportunity, that these are longitudinal relationships that patients have with their primary care providers. In essence, um, most of the guidelines are saying, call my primary care provider, and that primary care provider is not able to move out into the home to take care of folks. So in essence, the community paramedic becomes the eyes, the ears, the hands to provide interventions, and the human spirit in the patient's house to make sure that, that, that literally a lot of that longitudinal relationship is transposed from the primary care 
out through the paramedic to the patient. So again, we talked earlier about the flexibility of what uh, paramedics and EMTs can bring, and ultimately they are at this point in a lot of situations, if we can design it right, the extension and the, the building on the trust of that long-standing relationship, which ultimately I think is the, the most important part of in most interactions, is does this patient trust the system that's caring for them at this moment, and that trust is usually embodied in this relationship they have with who they identify, whoever that is, as their primary care provider. You know, I totally agree with that. Uh, you know, we have been encouraging through uh, the last several years that the interaction of our CPs primarily should be with the primary care provider of that patient. Now, to be sure, I do medical direction for the program, but we do encourage interaction on a regular basis, CP to primary care clinic and back back and forth to make sure the patient is getting the proper care with proper oversight by their primary care provider. And I think that's the most powerful comment to a patient. And having been on uh, medical control calls with patients that were my primary care patients, literally uh, having the paramedics say, I'm working on the team, and your primary care provider is either on the phone as backup or they'll know about exactly what happened here is what patients want. And I think ultimately everything we should do is we do pandemic or once we move beyond the pandemic needs to meet with the patients determined as good, high-quality health care. You know, so so much information, and I think really I just want to get everybody's final thought because everybody has a specific area of expertise. And if we go back to the public health side, Dr. Allard, if you're going to give me a final thought, what do you share with the listeners? Yes, for public health response and for population health management, I think that community paramedicine is really poised to um, make a significant contribution to populations at risk. And Dr. Mike Wilcox, if you give us a final thought, what do you share with the listeners? I would certainly agree with what Maggie has uh, suggested at this point. I think bottom line is our, our focus should be keeping patients at home in a safe environment with oversight by a healthcare team that uh, heavily engages in community paramedicine and community EMT uh, interaction. Very good. Dr. John Lockname, uh, again, I loved your article. We'll see if we can put it into the show notes. Uh, what's your final thought? Uh, that as a provider, as a physician provider, that the best possibility that I can do right now and in the future to provide high-quality care for my patients 24-7 is to have a community paramedic as part of my delivery team. I think that's great. And Matt Goodrow, uh, your final thought. I think that community paramedics are perfectly placed to have a huge role in, in really, truly impact keeping sick people in their home during this crisis. They've been well-trained. They, they have the tools that they need. Um, I, I'm totally confident that we're coming out of this uh, pandemic. We're going to see that this particular role was truly uh, invaluable in having successful outcomes, and then we can use that to springboard this into a much bigger conversation on a national level. I like that. And Dennis Russell, your final thought. I, I would echo everyone else, but also say that community paramedicine uh, has been here, has been here for a while, and now has the opportunity to, we have the opportunity to utilize folks um, in the best way possible. We have the education, we have the other means necessary to go out to these homes, keep them in the home safely, and 
whether or not it's in New England or across the nation, it's really important as we look at being innovative during this crisis. Oh my goodness. I mean, there is so much great information here and I want to thank each and every one of you guys for joining and sharing your expertise. And, you know, as we look at this, you know, we, we kind of talk about this pandemic and we sit there and we worry about, you know, the challenges and the frustrations and the, and the fear that it's bringing. And, but when we think about this from a career field side, we're, we're not standing on the corner of fear. I think we're standing on the corner of opportunity and success. And I think that we've got to be able to remember that as we now move this forward and as we think about the great work that we do, we've got to be able to make certain that you know, we're, we're sharing the, the work that we're doing. We're sharing the successes. We're sharing the failures. We're not only sharing the failures of what we found in the, in the field, but we're sharing the failures of the healthcare community as well and how we're able to augment and how we're able to strengthen and how we're able to bring them together and, and how we're able to make this horrible situation as successful as it could be. I want to thank Dr. Maggie Allard, Dr. Mike Wilcox, Dr. John Lockname, I want to thank Dennis Russell and uh, Matt Goodrow for joining us and sharing their expertise. Uh, for Kelly Grayson, I'm Chris Sabalera. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, go ahead and email us at the show at ems1.com, and we'll talk to everyone again next week.